Welcome to ACOM Insight, a podcast about higher education by the Association of Independent Colleges and Universities in Massachusetts. This week, Mass President Rob McCarran interviews Senator Eric Lesser, Senate Chair of the Joint Committee on Economic Development and Emerging Technologies. To begin, here's Rob. Hi, everyone. I'm Rob McCarran, President of Mass. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of our podcast that highlights people, policies, and programs and their connection to higher education in Massachusetts. This week, I will be speaking with Senator Eric Lesser. Uh, Senator Lester was first elected to the Massachusetts Senate in 2014, and for the last seven years, he has proudly represented nine communities in Western Massachusetts. His legislative agenda focuses intently on providing greater economic opportunity and quality of life for the residents of Western Massachusetts, including expanded passenger rail service, education, innovation, and housing access. Uh, So in light of those priorities, it's no surprise that the Senator serves as Senate Chair of the Joint Committee on Economic economic development and emerging technologies and is also co-chairing the future of work committee Uh, and if that's not enough prior to joining the massachusetts senate senator lesser worked for president obama's white house uh, and and after also serving on his 20 2008 campaign and uh worked for seven seasons as a script consultant on the hbo comedy veep which was a great show (laughs) it must have been an amazing experience fine yeah Uh, is also a proud graduate of Harvard College and Harvard Law School. It is my pleasure to welcome you to our podcast, Senator Lesser. Thanks for having me, Rob. Now, I noticed uh, you've been very busy, uh, uh, particularly even with uh, dealing with uh, everything that uh, went into responding to COVID. Um, And I've noticed that um, a lot of your work has involved engagement with the colleges and universities uh, in your district and throughout Western Mass. Um, can you talk a little bit about you know how it is you become that you do engage with the colleges and, and what that means to the work you do? Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for having me, Rob. I, great, great to be on uh, on the podcast with you. And uh, I'll have to. We're joking before. We'll have to return the favor and have you on my podcast. So we'll do a, a podcast swap. Yes, but uh, absolutely, I appreciate. <laughs> I appreciate uh, you having me on. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, look, it's no secret, obviously, for Massachusetts. Massachusetts, you know, we don't have great weather, we don't have natural resources in our ground, Uh, the resource we've got in Massachusetts is the people we have and how well educated and well trained they are. And obviously our our history with higher ed uh, and with colleges and universities is a big part of that. And in Western Mass in particular, we've got a lot of schools. So, uh, you know, my district is an interesting district because I I do have part of Hampshire County, uh, where of course you've got, you know, a big education sector with UMass, with Amherst College, Smith College, Mount Holyoke. Uh, But in Hampton County, we've got a lot of of, uh, universities and colleges too. I'm proud to represent Western New England uh, in the Senate. Uh, Also, I'm right on the border with AIC, American International College, uh, and um, Bay Path College, which I was at uh, just last week for a big funding announcement for a readiness boot camp they have, is also uh, in my district in Elms, Elms College in Chicopee, where we were just with with the Future of Work Commission. We brought them to Elms College. Harry Dumay, the president of Elms, is on that commission. So I've got a lot of schools. I've got a lot of people that work at schools, and obviously a lot of people that went to schools. So it's a, a really important sector for us. And you know, I'll just I know we got a lot of ground to cover, but what I would say is, you know, if you look at almost any challenge that we've got in the state right now, any opportunity that we've got, whether it's the changing future of work, whether it's emerging 
health and life sciences opportunities, whether it's big challenges like transportation or equality uh, or diversity and inclusion. You know, our universities, our higher ed community, our colleges are really going to be at the center of all those solutions, both in terms of training the next generation of people that are going to take on those challenges, researching uh, and doing research on the on, on what we need to do to address those challenges, but also as employers, as community members in their own right, uh, leading by example. So it's a really important sector. Uh, I'm really, really, uh, really proud to work collaboratively with our, with our schools and colleges. No, uh, you're exactly right. And what's amazing, you know, in looking at the schools that are in, in your district and in region, it's, you know, they, they import every year 13,000 students and employ almost 3,500 people. So they are, they're just connected so much to um, to what is happening uh, in Western Mass and throughout the state, but uh, you know you're also right. You touched on on just how how many ways colleges, universities are connected to the issues that really that you and, and others at the state house are wrestling with, like transportation and and green technology. And, and um, you know we saw um, the success of the state's investment in the life sciences center and what that has meant for the state, you know, th throughout the state and and really the the integral part that higher ed plays in. Uh, and that talent pipeline and that research to, to drive that and, and that's what's really interesting and and i think uh what you know what you had mentioned the um the future of work committee that you're co-chairing it's just really interesting to see how um you know COVID really has accelerated uh changes where, where you work from what you do how, you know um what your uh, commute might look like and so I'd, I'd be really interested to know to get an update on what that work is looking yeah. like and, and how, how higher ed can be part of that, uh, that ongoing dialogue. Yeah. I mean, so the, the future of work commission is a really exciting project that I've been spending a lot of time on recently. I, I co-chair the commission with Josh Cutler, uh, who's a, a great friend and really has been a great partner. He chairs the labor committee in the house of, very relevant, you know, kind of experience there chairing the labor committee on, on what what's happening in the world of work and with the with the kind of typical worker in Massachusetts, both now and in the years ahead. You know, at the core, what the commission is about is zooming up, you know, 30,000 feet by design. It's not a legislative committee. It's a kind of blue ribbon commission across government. So you have representatives from the executive branch. The attorney general has appointments. The governor has appointments. The legislature has appointments. And it's leaders, 17 commissioners from, again, across the state, across sectors that are really asking the big question of so much change is happening so rapidly. What is it going to look like? What is the experience going to be like for a Massachusetts worker five years from now, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, 25 years from now, and what do we need to be doing on a state level to put policies in place, to put preparations in place, to make sure that people are protected and that we're leveraging the best of all of these changes in society to help improve life for people, improve quality of work for people, and really doing everything we can as much as possible to control for and adapt to, and in, in, in many cases, help mitigate or, or stop uh, some of the biggest, uh, some of the biggest challenges in the, in this future model. So you just think about the trend to remote work, right? Uh, what does that mean for broadband capacity? What does that mean for transportation policy? We have an MBTA that's designed around a five day a week, nine to five commute. People's commutes are not necessarily going to look like that 
anymore. Uh, what does it mean for um, health insurance and worker benefits and unemployment insurance when people increasingly are working multiple jobs? You have companies like Uber and Lyft that set up these sort of gig, quote unquote, gig economy frameworks. How do we make sure people stay protected? How do we make sure people continue to have benefits and job security? It's a lot, uh, you know, and it's a lot to kind of wrap your head around, but uh, it's really among the most important and impactful questions, you know, that state government, really that any any policymaker is, is going to be facing in the years ahead. Just take universities as just one example. I mean, what it means to be a working for a college or to be part an employee of a college means something very different today than it did even 10 years ago. You have a lot more remote instruction. You have a lot more night classes. You have a lot more credentials based and iterative based training. Uh, and that's just a very different model from you know, our parents or grandparents generation. So it's a lot lot to kind of unpack and, and, and we're, we're, we're by design taking a kind of 30,000 foot view of what's happening. Uh, and then our hope is, is that as we move closer to our kind of deadline for recommendations, we're going to get more and more granular and specific about, uh, about what, what needs to happen. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like a really incredible and, and exciting opportunity and you're right. It does. Um, it touches all parts of what it means to, to live and work here. And, and you're, you're, uh, you're right on about, um, you know, colleges, universities having the same uh, conversation. And, and, you know, when we saw um, in responding to COVID, you know, the colleges, universities within two weeks pivoted to uh, completely online, turning everything online, and then learning from that and, and thinking there are students um, that they'll want to reach uh, that, you know, that would prefer that platform. But I think it also demonstrated, um, you know, there are, there are jobs and, and professions where remote working is not um, right. preferred or possible. And, and you know, in-person in residential learning is uh, when, we're, um, when we're not able to do it, it really demonstrates the value of having that, um, that ability to be on a campus and to foster that growth and to have that exchange with, with folks. And, um, and, and so that I think will, it will always be part of that equation. And, and similarly, um, life science, you know, you know, being in a lab and having that interaction. You know, so there are some things that will um, be really amenable to remote work and others that, that will not. And, and that's why I think what's fascinating about what you're doing is really um, taking that, that um, as you said, that 5, 10, 15 year look to see what it means to Massachusetts. Because, um, you know, we are, I think we're unique given the, our, our um, innovation ecosystem and, and the uh, you know, people talk about the eds and meds and the, you know, the research universities and the, and the healthcare and, and all that that means for our, our economy. And, um, and it's just, um, it's an interesting perch to, to be doing it from that, that future, of, future of work committee uh, for you and, and for the legislature and others. And, and I think part of that also, um, and I know yesterday the Senate released its blueprint for, um, you know, how they're going to uh, think about um, investing that first part of the, the federal the ARPA money that was received from the federal government, and I think that's um, that's interesting how that works also with what you're thinking about the future of work and, and where that investment could be made. And um, as, as you, I know you've talked about a lot the, the uh, passenger rail and um, allowing folks to get from Springfield to Worcester and Boston in a very efficient way to just increase those opportunities. Um, and and you know I think the that ARPA money is an interesting opportunity to really think about those, um, those issues and, and possible solutions. You know, and one thing that, um, 
uh, you know, also has um, unfortunately come up a lot, uh, particularly over the last couple of years. Um, and we see it some on college campuses, but really just generally is the, the trend, the troubling trend around um, hate crimes and anti-Semitism and, and just this confrontational, angry behavior. Um, and I, I just wanted to see if you had any thoughts you might have about kind of the role of higher education in, in yeah. the return to civility. And, and this is perhaps for many uh, individuals that, that four-year opportunity for a personal growth and, and learning and being exposed to other, uh, other people, other um, uh, cultures, and other, um, uh, other ways to look and, and think about a problem. I just wonder if you had your thoughts on kind of the role of higher ed broadly. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, I think it's an important question. I mean, there's undoubtedly been a rise in hate crimes really across the board. Uh, you saw, you know, a huge spike in anti-Asian uh, crimes and bias, you know, certainly during through COVID and, and really continuing even even after the height of COVID. And uh, and uh, the, the you know, in particular, I think the climate on many college campuses for Jewish students has become uh, very, uh, very problematic. And I hear that from constituents. I hear that from, from families. And you, you just, you need to take that very seriously when a, when a person is saying that they're not feeling safe or protected because of, uh, you know, an immutable characteristic, religion, race, gender, uh, sexual orientation, um, you know, really any of those uh, of those issues. It's, it's very, very serious. I think actually, you know, again, kind of like all the other topics we've just been talking about, universities and colleges really, really do play a very important role in being the solution. Uh, and I think they've got to be very mindful of protecting free speech, you know, really all, all types of free speech, but at the same time, fostering a, a, an environment of dialogue and sharing of ideas and being open to spending time with and learning from people who might be different from you, might be very different from you. Uh, so I, I think this is a very big challenge. Uh, you know, I don't know uh, necessarily how much government can play a role. Uh, I mean, there's certainly a, a, a law enforcement and a kind of public safety issue around vandalism and, and hate crimes that obviously a government uh, needs to be involved with. But in terms of the cultural changes that have to happen uh, in terms of how people treat one another on a, on a higher level sense, uh, that actually is the role of professors, teachers, coaches, community leaders who set the tones in communities uh, for, for how people engage with each other. You know, we did a program that's now actually gotten significantly increased, uh, unfortunately, because of significant need around nonprofit security grants. So I know several Hillels at several campuses uh, have been recipients of, of some of this funding. But the idea here is mosques, churches, synagogues, really anywhere that's been the target of, of, of hate crimes or of, uh, of any type of hate or bigot, bigoted uh, violence. Uh, or vandalism is now eligible for support money uh, where they can do install things like surveillance cameras, you know, um, uh, fencing, lighting equipment. I mean, it's sad that in America, yes. this day and age, these are the kinds of things that organizations are telling us they need to invest in, but it's necessary. Uh, and, uh, and we've got to make sure that the organizations are protected. Uh, at the same time, we have to do the higher level and really more intensive work of, of changing the culture uh, in our country and in our state around how people who are different uh, are, are treated. Yeah, no, you're right. It is, uh, it, it is sad and it is, um, but I, you know, I do think, you know, the talk now is vaccines um, about, for, about COVID vaccines, but really the vaccine for hatred and, and that, um, that type of behavior 
is education and having um, you know that that thoughtful civil discourse and exchange of ideas that happens on a college campus um, that really starts to um, peel away some of the the um, issues that really lead and feed into that that um, that that's, that that hatred and that um, the problems that grow from it. So it is, um, I, I, and I think it's one of the things when when people more broadly say, what is the value of, of a college education? Um, I think one of, um, one of the great values is that um, you know, the, the individual coming out the other side of their experience um, through education is gonna be a more engaged um, person, gonna be more engaged with their local community. And, 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 and I think that the benefit of that just accrues to all of us um, when we're talking about issues like this. Um, and then I thought uh, we would close, uh, I think, by just talking a little bit about some of um, uh, your, your legislative accomplishments, because I know you're, um, you know, we could go, um, I, was, I was very excited to, to be able to talk to you because you're working on so many different uh, things that, as you had mentioned, the colleges are, are engaged in. But I know two things that you've worked on very hard and have been successful at most recently uh, was securing a, a permanent extension of a, a, a tax um, Incentive for, for contributing to 529 college savings plans and also a student loan bill of rights. And um, I don't know if you want to talk briefly about, about yeah. the issues. In there. Well, the 529s to me were, were a no-brainer. I mean, obviously the federal government, 529 refers to an IRS section uh, of the federal tax code, you know, allows for, um, you know, basically tax, tax advantage savings to be used and the draw on that to be used for paying tuition or other um, education related expenses. Uh, the state though did not have a state level 529, which put Massachusetts really at a disadvantage because a lot of people in Massachusetts were using other states' plans, uh, which you know really is not an ideal situation. It was commonly done. It was encouraged actually by a lot of financial planners to do that. Uh, and so it just made sense to have a state, uh, a state level and, and state uh, focused program. Uh, in one of the economic development bills several years ago, I think it was 2018, uh, we, we had a temporary uh, extension and then made yes. the extension permanent, which I think is important. You know, look, the cost of college is uh, skyrocketing and, you know, challenge to the education community and, and to you and your members, Rob, you know, schools need to do their part to keep costs under control. Uh, but we also need to make sure that families have the means and have the tools to save for what is really the biggest expense for a lot of families, which is putting a child uh, through college. And, you know, the era of being able to pay for school by, you know, scooping ice cream on, in the summer or waiting tables or bartending is, is really just not feasible anymore when you look at the math. Even for public higher ed, the tuition increases have been, have been astronomical. And, uh, you know, I just think about my parents, uh, working class families, my dad from a Jewish immigrant family, family in Brooklyn, my mom, an Italian immigrant family in lower Manhattan, they, they went to city college for, I think it was $50 a semester city college in New York. Uh, and you could obviously pay that with, with side jobs. My dad drove a cab. My mom was a, worked as a receptionist. Uh, now, uh, you can't do that with, um, you know, with, with given how, how expensive it is. So the 529s are a very important tool and connected to that student loan bar bill of rights, uh, you know, that, that we now have made the law of the land in Massachusetts. The attorney general's office now has an entire division, an entire office 
task staff with a team of lawyers implementing and enforcing this new provision. It's very important because, you know, kids are loaded with, you know, astronomical debt, debt burdens and the servicers uh, who are in charge of kind of collecting the payments and notifying uh, the, the student, the student borrowers, uh, both of their obligations, what they have to pay, but also of their rights, what they're entitled to, the loan deferments they qualify for, the interest reductions that they qualify for, just weren't doing it. Uh, and you had examples of for example, public service workers, veterans, teachers, firefighters uh, who had gone out, gotten their education, were eligible for a loan, loan repayment or, or, uh, or interest-free assistance and were never even told by their servicers. So uh, this is going to be a, a really important provision. It's, it's one of the biggest consumer protection expansions in the state in a very long time. I was really excited to work on that and uh, I'm really excited to see to see where it leads. There are 800,000 people with pending student loan debt in Massachusetts. It touches almost every family in some way, shape or form. Uh, and, it, and it now exceeds about $40 billion in overall, uh, on, um, in overall debt loads. The average debt is around $30,000 a person at this point. So uh, it, it's a big challenge. But then, you know, the other issue is we need partnership from the schools uh, to, to help keep costs down. Uh, and, you know, tuition has risen far above the rate of inflation, uh, far above um, the price of almost any other product except maybe healthcare, but that's not a great comparison uh, for a lot of reasons. And so I think you got to do both. You got to, you got to make sure we're getting help to, to students. We got to make sure that they're getting support on their student loans. We've also got to really put a challenge out to the schools to say, okay, you guys have to do your part now uh, to keep the tuitions as low as possible and, and where, wherever possible to keep costs under control. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think that's what I think the schools, <clears throat> at least our members are very focused on, on, on demonstrating that uh, the value of that investment and, and, and looking for those opportunities to really support um, students and families uh, to make sure that they not only get to um, college, get, uh, but get through it and get on with their careers in a really timely um, and efficient way. And I know that's one of the I think one of the great things about the work that you and, and your colleagues did with 529s is recognizing that you, you, you know, alerting people, uh, families earlier to start saving and, and making that investment, but, you know, doing it in a way that, um, as you mentioned, there was initially, it was done with a sunset and, and that was, you know, at the, really at the strong recommendation of your colleague, the Senate Ways and Means Chair, uh, Michael Roderick saying, okay, this sounds like a good idea, but let's, let's see how it works. Let's give it right, a little, exactly. sun and we'll sunset it, but, and what it proved and demonstrated is it really was successful. And then that's why your effort to make it permanent so that families could rely on it going forward was really, was really key. And, um, and we do uh, and support and, and try to get as much um, on a state and federal level funding for financial aid and why we've been um, working on a national campaign to, uh, to double the Pell which would really make, um, you know, doubling the Pell would make community college free, would make, would really provide an investment for needy families in, in, in making uh, college a reality, and and, um, and we're continuing those efforts um, because I do I agree it's, it's it's such an important investment in helping um, being pulling those different pieces of the puzzle together and making it easier to pull those pieces together uh, so that they have a greater impact will will help everyone and and it's what uh, it's what the Commonwealth's economy relies on it's that that educated talented workforce and and um, and hopefully makes your work, uh, thinking about the future work, a little easier. 
Absolutely. So, uh, well, I want to uh, really thank you uh, for taking the time to chat with us. Um, like I said, there's, there's so many things you're working on and, and that connected that we could go on. And that's why I'd be happy to join your podcast at some time and, and maybe learn more about um, your work on Veep because yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, you gotta, you gotta, you always gotta, uh, you, you always gotta poke fun at yourself a little bit, but um, oh yeah, <laughs> funny, but uh, yeah, I mean, the show was a was a lot of fun and uh, you know went through a lot, a lot changed in politics over the seven years of Veep. You know, it started with Obama as president, ended with Trump as president, and obviously everything that happened in between. And the show had to adapt. Let's put it that way uh, with uh, with, <laughs> the, all, with the mood did. of the country <laughs> uh, as uh, as as things were progressing <laughs> well well I, I really do appreciate it and and look forward to working with you and continuing to work with you as as we um uh, you know hopefully emerge beyond covid and, and really start thinking about those those issues that you're wrestling with with transportation and and, and the future of work and and i really um, want to be a, a resource and a partner to those thank those you efforts. no thank you rob feeling it's mutual. I mean, we appreciate working with uh, with you and with your team on the Student Loan Bill of Rights and the 529s and, uh, and, and all of the other great, great partnerships. So um, thank you. And uh, we'll see you at one of our Western Mass schools at the Elms or Western New England yes. AIC. We got a lot to choose from. So uh, absolutely. Uh, I was actually out to Springfield two weeks ago and, and uh, to visit with Mary Beth. And uh, I think I'm heading out to Elms in another couple of weeks. So that's awesome. Yeah, well, tell Mary Beth we said hi. So there, she, I, I admire her a lot. And Springfield College uh, is a, a, a great anchor for us in, uh, in Western Mass and a great employer. So, um, and, uh, and hosts my senior fair every year. So, yes, the Thrive at 55. I've heard exactly. A lot yeah, exactly. So, I was thanks supposed to go out last us. year, but it was virtual again. So, exactly. Yeah. Good. This year, we, we got to do it in person this year, I think, because uh, by June, I think we're going to be, we'll be in good shape. So, I, I hope so, and, and that would be that would be a welcome a welcome change. Well, thanks for having me. Thank you very much. All right, take care. Bye bye. You too. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Acom Insight. We will be back with a new episode next week. Be sure to listen and share.